1671. Go ahead, Libby. All right, this is Acts 9, 19 through 43. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy, conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that he, the Lord, had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and roll your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Man, I cannot believe how good that girl reads scripture. Yeah, all three passages we were texting between service, Libby, and so we want to invite you to officially be on the scripture reading rotation. So if you want to do that, just tell us, because we would love that. <clears throat> but then you'll be preaching probably soon after that, so be careful what you say. I've also decided to do a public service. I'm going to take somebody's tumbler out of the lost and found every week and drink my tea or coffee out of it. And that way you'll be like, oh, that's my tumbler. And it is. Just come get it after the service. (laughs) 
kind of a light way to start what's going to be kind of a heavy sermon, I'm afraid. Uh, A few chapters later in Acts, in Acts 15, um, there's the first pastoral letter that's written to the whole church about what's going on in their lives and what's happening and how Christians should understand the gospel in relationship to something. And the Jerusalem church gets together and they write this letter and they send it. Um, to the churches. And I don't know if you know this, but that's pretty much what the whole New Testament is, once you get past the Gospels and the Book of Acts. All the epistles, that's a cool word that we have um, for letter, for pastoral letter, right? Some pastor writing to somebody, some group of Christians and saying, hey, this is how you should live, believe, think, feel about what's going on in your lives right now. And um, normally I preach from pastoral letters, but there is a 2,000-year tradition of Christian pastors understanding it to be their duty in certain moments of the life of the church to write their own pastoral letter to the church, to, to help the church reflect on the moment in time they live in and what's going on and how they should think and feel about it and respond Christianly. And I don't want to be reactionary, but I'm, I'm not going to be here for a month. Um, the, the month of July, Lloyd and Vince have prepared a very good series from the Book of Ruth for you guys. I've seen the outlines and the biblical interpretation. All that. We got together and worked on it. It's going to be really good. Um, so I will be on family leave for the whole month of July, which my kids really need. Um, so I didn't want to wait a month. So I want to talk to you about this today. And that has to do not just with the Supreme Court's decision in relationship to same-sex marriage, though it's mainly in relationship to that, but, I, but also in response to what we're seeing now in terms of the collusion of media, government, and now large corporations to push cultural changes in a moment um, that would normally have taken decades. And that is partly in relationship to what is known in the South as the rebel flag, for example. In four days, boom, media, government, businesses, it's gone. And although in some sense you may be like, well, good riddance, maybe that's right. Maybe that's right, but that's still a little totalitarian and bone-chilling, frankly. And so in relationship to the times in which we live, um, I want to try to help us understand Christianly how we should theologically in a biblical and gospel-centered way reflect on the moment in which we live. Okay? Um, Before I do that, let me make just a quick disclaimer. There are actually quite a number of people at High Point Church— that experience very profound same-sex attraction in terms of their orientation and and or transgendered. And I, I want you to know that because I don't want you ever to say some unguarded thing assuming that such people would never come to high point because of the move, some movement has told them they wouldn't want to come here. Um, you're, you're a sinner and you have all kinds of profoundly disordered orientations in you and yet you want to hear the gospel, and you want to know Christ, and you want to—don't assume other people don't. We are all terrifyingly broken by sin and all of our orientations and desires. People from all kinds of walks of life come to hear the gospel, and they're here, and they love Jesus, and they oftentimes serve more than you, and they are wonderful, and don't ever allow yourself to say a sentence really anywhere, but especially in the church that is unguarded in its loving and empathetic nature, even, no matter what truth you feel like you need to speak. And for those of you for whom that's true about you, I, I want you to know that I and I think the vast majority of people really deeply love you and care about you and try not to be self-righteous and condescending in relationship to the experiences that you have. And we're trying to ref- all reflect our way through what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
Um, I think I have nine reflections on this, so we better get going. The first is that there are some people in the church that are really sort of oblivious, or they don't really know why some people seem to be so concerned about this. Um, A lot of those people tend to be of younger generations, but it's intermittent, and there's—so let me help you understand why, if you feel that way. There's three main reasons. One is a, a sense of a loss of cultural rationality. And the reason why that's important is that if a culture falls into an emotive way of thinking, emotive ways of thinking always call to power to get their resolution. Rational ways of thinking tend to move towards persuasion to create their resolution. So even when people profoundly disagree with you, if they're arguing on the basis of rationality, they're at that point still seeking to persuade you. They're not trying to take power over you. They want you to see the truth and for the truth to constrain you rather than their force. When people fall into an emotive way of thinking that whatever occurs to them is right, whatever their intuition says must be the case, and there tends to be a clouded form of thinking, people then often reach to the illegitimate means of power in which to get that done. And you can see that all through the history of the West, all through the history of the nation state, and it's a little little bone chilling. And when in a decision that is supposedly reasoned one cannot accept that there is actually a difference between a man and a woman. When somebody looks at a man and looks at a woman and fundamentally says, that is a distinction without a difference, (laughs) and therefore must be discrimination, that is a point of view that some have quipped one must be very educated to believe. Because it's so absolutely clearly false to anybody who's using their eyes and their natural experience of the world in which they live. And so there is some, some fear that in the name of reason, a emotive thinking has taken hold in such a way that will always grip to power. And there is no telling what emotional thinking people gripping power will do to other people they disagree with. Doesn't matter what their politics are. Secondly is the leverage against dissent that happens when we declare something a right in our culture. What, what we mean in our culture by a right now, it's not true in 1776, but it's true now, is that you are no longer allowed to talk about this. It's over. And if you disagree with something we call a right, that's because you are a bigoted sort of person that needs to be not only stigmatized by others, but it becomes the right of every decent person to themselves stigmatize the person that disbelieves in the right that has been declared. And there can be no rational discourse because it becomes immoral to listen to somebody engaging in rational about something that is a right if they don't, if they're not affirming it. And what that means is the capacity to stigmatize other things that we have for a long time thought were rights, like the freedom, not of worship, but of religion. I don't know if you realize this, but for the entire history of the Anglo-Saxon West, freedom of religion meant freedom of conscience in all areas and walks of life. It had nothing to do with worship. That's what freedom of religion has meant for hundreds of years. But you see it being redefined now to mean only freedom of worship. That means you can do what you want in here, right now. But not at work, not in how you run your business, not in how you teach in a university, not how you do any of those things. There's not freedom of religion. There's only freedom of worship. That is the distinction, actually, that was made in, in, in communist Russia. 
Carl F. H. Henry in his autobiography, Confessions of a Theologian, talks about being in the Soviet Union when it was the USSR and talking with some officials and them saying, well, we have freedom of, of, of religion. And Henry said, you mean you have freedom of worship, which you don't have? That's not what freedom of religion is. And he defined it. And he said both of the officials kind of smiled a broad smile because they were surprised he could actually make the distinction. But they knew the distinction and they lived on it. The, th the third thing is further weakening of public virtue. And that is, there are a lot of people that believe that in order for marriage to have the functional strength, it, its definition in the minds of people has to be clear. Now, I am not saying, I think the biggest detrimental thing that has happened to marriage is the divorce revolution. I, th I think it's extraordinarily difficult to argue that it wasn't heterosexual people that screwed up marriage, okay? Let's just be clear about that. And, and then I would argue the next thing has been political policies that we've put in place that have disincentivized marriage. Wherever, wherever the gay movement is, it's way down the line. However, the reason many people, and I would include myself, are concerned about this is that when you mess with the definition of something, it's clarity of meaning. It messes with people's conceptualization of it, which messes with their understanding of it, their motivation towards it, and their ability to be disciplined in it. And that's real. Now, is it as detrimental as what heterosexual people did in the divorce revolution? I don't know. Probably not. But it matters. And we've already had the divorce revolution. We don't need to be piling on. That's why they're concerned. Now, the next thing that has to be clear to, to understand is those who are really concerned about this, you need to understand the perspectives of others. It's very important you understand the perspective of others. In the global church, people who are Christians not in America, they are not going to be sympathetic to our whining about our government no longer co-supporting our faith. <laughs> like, the idea that many Christians have had that somehow America has res residual effects or affects morally of a, of a Christian ideology, and therefore our, our governmentally cultural life and our church life have sort of co-supported each other, and that that's tragically going away, that may very well be true, but most people in the world who are Christians are not going to be particularly sympathetic to us. Because that has been true for them for, for some of them generations or ever. People in Canada are like, we've been doing this for 20 years. I don't see what you guys are whining about. Like, it, it, they aren't going to care. I mean, there are people in um, Syria and Iraq that are getting beheaded, people being burned alive, people being crucified, disemboweled. They are not going to be particularly sympathetic to us being like, <laughs> like, this is bad. I mean, it's not going to sound good, okay? And you need to realize that. Right. Secondly, your secular neighbors believe that this last week was one of the moral apex moments in the history of America. That's what your neighbors think, okay? And you cannot be oblivious to that. They believe that in one week, through a spontaneous gathering of all kinds of cultural apparatus, we erased one of the worst symbols of American racism, and we christened one of the great symbols of modern equality. That's what they think and feel very deeply. And if you don't fully agree with that, you need to realize they don't agree with you, okay? Because that's how they feel. And then lastly, our, what I would call our liberal Christian neighbors, I don't think actual formal liberal Christianity is Christian, because it's, it's not, I don't mean it as a political ideology, but as an idea that you have to redefine the Christian doctrines to fit modern cultural norms, um, which I can't get into all that right now. But they 
really strongly believe that this is going to strengthen marriage in America. Um, I've sat down probably four or five times with a guy named Scott Anderson. He's the president of the Wisconsin Council of Churches. He was the first openly gay ordained Presbyterian minister in the PCUSA. And I've had discussions with him about having a forum on poverty here. And I said, because he can't get evangelicals to come to any of his meetings, I said, listen, if we have an eye point, I'm speaking and I'm saying my piece. And then you can speak and say your piece. And we can show what a civil disagreement looks like between people who really disagree. And he's like, that would be great. Right? But that's relationship. He absolutely believes, I've had conversations with him about this. He said, he said, the dissolution of marriage, the breaking of the American family, is the most important social problem in America. There's a lot of people who are Republicans who don't believe that there are an enormous number of American Democratic liberals who believe that. that their solution is different, and they believe that the affirmation of gay marriage will help, not hurt, because it's including a whole demographic of people in marriage. Now, I don't agree with that, but... Listen, we cannot afford to be naive about how our global, secular, and liberally Christian neighbors think about this stuff. You can't—we can't talk past them. We have to speak with and to them. Does that make sense? Now, I want to say some things about how I believe we should reflect on this theologically as Christians. And one is in relationship to a Christian view of history— we, if we hold to a biblical gospel, are going to be on the bad side of public opinion, but not the wrong side of history. We are going to be on the bad side of public opinion, but not the wrong side of history. Resistant Christians to cultural affirmations of the natural progress of all things have always resisted the idea that things are getting better and better and better, and they're going to keep getting better. Christians have never believed that. The Bible explicitly says it's false. And it's based on an understanding of human beings that we don't agree with. The, the, the whole idea is based on, on the idea that the reason people are bad to each other is because they don't have a good enough environment. And that lack of a good environment has a lot to do with a lack of wealth. But with the progress of science, there will be an increase in technology. Technology will leverage labor and produce wealth. Wealth will produce the beneficial environment that everybody requires. And when people are in an environment in which they can flourish, they naturally will because people want to flourish and they're basically good. And if you put them in a flourishing and possible environment, they will flourish. And then we will have the society that Jesus wants us to have. From a Christian perspective, that is totally wrong. Christian people are not not good because they lack a beneficial environment. Now, there's a lot of truth to the fact that there are certain kinds of poverty and environmental factors that are enormously degrading to people and that cause them to dramatically underachieve what they could achieve. There's some truth to that. But the vision of continual progress of the arc of history has nothing to do with Christian faith at all. It has everything to do with a secular ideology that's based in not modernity, but modernism and the worship of the march of progress. Christians don't believe that. We don't believe it. Partly because we have not jumped on certain bandwagons that have been proved wrong over and over and over and over again. For example, it was considered settled reason and logic that many human phenotypes, physical body formations, demonstrated the clear inferiority of those people to other people. That was considered settled science in America. The Germans got it from us. 
And not just for black people. It was, it was later figured out that Germans and Anglo-Saxons could prove that the Irish were fundamentally inferior to them through evolutionary Darwinism. Because if you think of it this way, Darwinism makes things better in its environment by natural selection that comes through competition. And everybody knows that the great, most violent empires of the world happened this side of the Danube, this side of the steppes of China, down to Central Egypt. That area of the world has been the most societally competitive area in the world. And so there was wars and fightings and writings and thinking and reading. And therefore, the peoples produced by the evolutionary competitiveness of that area are going to naturally rise to be evolutionary superior to others. Meanwhile, the sub-Saharan Africans that were, that were separated from that competition because of the Sahara Desert evolved very lowly, and then they moved up into the Iberian Peninsula, that is Spain, and were separated from the competition by the Pyrenees. And then they made it over to Ireland and the British Isles, where they could be separated from competition even more and maintain their fundamental genetic inferiority. So that when the Anglo-Saxon Teutonic people made it to Britain, it was completely natural to understand the people already living there, especially the Irish, to be fundamentally inferior to those arriving. Settled science. Clear reason. Make sure you're on the right side of history. And you can multiply this a hundred times. The Jews, the eugenics movement, um, African anti-African-American racism. We'll fix our schools if we do these things that are based in modernism in science. And then politicians of both parties come along and say things like, if another country had done our public school system what we have done to it, we would consider it an act of war. We were going to build skyscrapers in the middle of Chicago to solve the problems of poverty. And now the Caperni Greens have all been torn down because they were terrible social experiments that destroyed generations of black lives. And on and on and on and on. And all of these things were considered, if you don't get on board with this, you are a relic. You're going to be on the wrong side of history. This is clear reason in settled science. And over and over and over again, it's not. It's hubris. It's human pride. And it's not because science is bad. Science is rockin' awesome. This is why. And this is what some of the scientistic people will not accept about their own discipline. That the best way to bastardize either religious faith or science is to tie it into the emotional, political, driving feelings of the day. And the, the, the feelings of the mob, the political expediency, the we want to get this done, will always capture science and it will always capture religious faith. And it will make it say what it wants to. Doesn't matter what party, doesn't matter what ideology. And this has been true for a lot of you is our view of children and how they should be reared, our view of same-sex attraction and how that functions, our view of how to get past racism, our view of many things for which we are still radically stuck in our culture. We are stuck partly because we believe something because some ideological drive taught it. And it wasn't proved by either science or faith. Science and faith have to precede our beliefs and support them and tell us what is prescriptive, not the fire of our emotions to what occurs to us intuitionally should be done in this moment. And I would argue that the quote science that is so important right now 
is, has totally captured the psychological and sociological experimental science in relationship to same-sex attraction and same-sex marriages and the adoptive effect on children. But even more than that, one Teutonic Anglo-Saxon who believed that the last slide was bunk, J.R.R. Tolkien, showed in The Lord of the Rings that those who believe in nobility, no matter what is happening on the level of the state or in the macro culture around us, that we have to live towards what we believe is true. Damn the trajectory of history. And one of the fighters of Gondor referred to their defense of the entire free West as the long defeat. They didn't plan to win. But they were gonna, they were gonna, they were gonna be defeated, but it was gonna be a long defeat. Another author said it was, it's part of the tragic optimism of Christian faith. Think about it. As you, as you, as you read the Bible, does the Bible teach that things are gonna get better and better and better and better, and then Jesus is gonna come back? Doesn't. Doesn't teach that at all. Now, does that mean that we can't have momentary progress or that things can't get better? No, it doesn't mean that. But the problem with progressivism is it misunderstands progress. That is, that if there's 25 things in your life, 15 of them might be getting better, and a lot of the other ones might be getting worse. We can be technologically advancing and morally dissolving all at the same time. Even your relationships, they can be getting better in some ways and much worse in others. Progress is never unilateral. Ever. And it's partly because of the reality of human nature. We aren't good, we aren't virtuous unless we have to be. And so what that means is that when times are terrible, human beings realize that they have to be virtuous to survive. So they stay in their marriages and they work hard and they fight for things and they do what they believe is right because if they don't, they're going to die. And what happens is, is that you build this in strong industrial culture and an empire and the empire rises and then the empire grows rich. And then what happens? People start trading on the system. They parasitically steal from its strength. Well, everybody else is being virtuous. I don't have to be. The problem is, is that in one or two generations, everybody decides that or a high enough percentage that it implodes the whole system. And down the empire goes in debt and disillusion. And we've seen this, we've seen this in every culture among every people. You can see it in ancient Ethiopia and Egypt. You can see it in ancient China. You can see it in semi-modern Venice, the Spanish, all the European empires. It's always the same deal. Human hubris, virtue when it's necessary, wealth produces vice, and we implode ourselves. And in the Bible, you have the man of lawlessness, you have tribulations, you have what are called the antichrists, you have figures that enter in and that claim to be good and claim to be founders of virtue and claim to be cultural leaders of society. And Jesus always says, be very careful. These people will lead you astray. And at the very end, all of history turns against the Christians to the point where they're being murdered and Jesus returns at the moment of the long defeat. That's the storyline of the Bible. So any Christian that is drawn towards this sort of progressivist curve ideal needs to just—you just have to read your Bible. The Bible is explicit about this. And that you end up on the wrong side of history because when you lose and die, at that moment, Jesus comes and vindicates those who trust him and sets them on the right side of the future. 
We have a very different view of history. We're gonna be on the wrong side of public opinion, but we're gonna be on the right side of history. The second is, is that we have to take more seriously the radically different view of human beings we hold as Christians. Theologians sometimes talk about this as the teleological versus the instrumental view. So teleological means what something is for, right? So an airplane is for flying, a watch is for telling time, right? And so the Christian view is a teleological view. We believe that human beings are for something. We're created in God's image with dignity to fulfill the creation mandate and to draw people into the creation mandate by speaking to them about the Salvation Commission, right? So we're created by God to be vice regents in his physical world, right? He says, be fruitful and multiply, rule over the earth and subdue it. That idea of ruling over and subdue is not meant to be tyrannical. It's meant to be cultivational. So imagine a beautifully cultivated garden. It's been controlled and subdued. That is, the weeds are gone and stuff, but it's flourishing in and of its own life through the care. And human beings aren't multispatial. So if you're going to bring the whole earth into that subjection and cultivation, you're going to need a pile of humans who are going out to do it, right? Which is why the beginning of the Bible is anti-urban. Because if you get everybody in the same place, they're not out cultivating the world, right? And so that's, that's the creation mandate. Make families, have children, produce godly offspring, and work. Bring out the creative potential of the world for the good of the world and for the good of each other. And then, when the fall comes in chapter 3, then there is this redemption mandate where God is calling people back to himself and through that back to the creation mandate. That's what we're for. That is totally different than an instrumental view that I am what I use myself as an instrument to accomplish. So if I want to say I am X, I'm X. There is nothing inherent defining me. Now, that is inherent idolatry because it's the belief that you can define yourself from yourself. You can't. One way to put it is this way. We are free to discover and live out our nature. We are not free to determine and self-define that nature. Our job as humans is to, is to figure out what we are and to live that out. And, but our nature is not the same thing as our experience because there are a lot of appeals to experience. Well, this is how I feel. This is what I'm like. This is my experience. That's not what the Bible means by nature. Because all the way through the Bible, as it speaks of our inner experience, it says that our inner experience is mixed. There are capacities and passions and strengths and abilities that we have because of the divine image. But the divine image, because of sin, has been bent and broken and turned in on ourselves, which takes these things that God gives us and drives them out in all kinds of weird ways, which produces a sinful condition. And our internal experience is a mixture of the divine image bent and broken by the sinful condition. So you cannot evaluate your internal experience from your internal experience. That's why God has spoken and shown himself in the man Jesus Christ and in the written scriptures. So he can tell us how to sort through our internal experience so we know what is from the divine image that we need to discipline, motivate, and exercise, that is, have dominion over and cultivate even within ourselves. And what we have to do to use the, the language of Romans 8, crucify, kill, and put to death. My internal experience of having a sexuality is God-given. My internal orientation to be a lecturer is not. It's part of the bent and brokenness of, my, of God, the God-given gift of my sexuality. This has to be put to death. 
This has to be disciplined, motivated, and exercised within the bounds in which God has given me. We have to recognize how different a view of human beings we hold as Christians. And one of the things that we don't give enough attention to is the fact that a full half of the setup in the Bible of what human beings are is focused on the duality and complementary nature of gender. One of the things we will never be able to go along with the present cultural trend is, is the idea that gender is ancillary. It's not that important. It can be changed. Whatever you want to call yourself is fine. However you want to self-define yourself is fine. Listen, before, in Genesis 3, the third page of the Bible, God starts telling the story of redemption. Before that, he's setting up the characters and the setting. And as he's setting up the setting, in chapter 1, he talks about the creation of the whole physical world and the creation of man and woman created in his image. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and rule over it, right? And that's what he tells them. And so you already have both genders, both made in God's image, but it doesn't say anything about their nature to each other. It just says they're both there. They're to be fruitful and multiply, so they're going to at least do that with each other, right? But there's no, there's no emphasis on, the, on gender, other than that both are made in God's image. But the minute you flip over to chapter 2, there's this kind of long storytelling explanation, and we miss the point of it because we read it in a snarky way. In chapter 2, God makes Adam, and he makes all the creatures of the world, and he brings them to Adam, and he has Adam name them, right? And I mean, you can imagine that's a little emotionally exhausting. I mean, I, I only had to name four kids, and that was that just about severed my marriage, right? You know, like, it's, it's not easy. But like, he, like all these animals, Adam's like, we're going to call that a giraffe. We're going to call this a this or whatever, right? And he gets done, and it says, but for Adam, no suitable companion was found, right? And secular readers of this get really snarky, like, yeah, so like, you know, what was, you know, what was Adam supposed to do? Take up with a giraffe? You know, I mean, what was God doing? And I always say, well, it's just because there weren't dogs yet, you know, that he couldn't find a suitable companion. But the, the point of that whole passage, what's being said in storytelling form rather than in didactic teaching, is this. Adam names all the creatures on earth, all the creatures he's going to be with. He names all of them. He sees all of them. He understands all of them. And then God says to him, how do you feel? And he looks at God and he goes, I feel lonely. I feel like there's nobody like me. No real companion. And God goes, exactly. And so he puts him to sleep and he takes a part out of him. He makes the woman and then you get the first exclamation of the Bible by a human, where Adam says, at last. Do you see that? That phrase is so important. At last what? At last he named all these creatures. He went through every single living thing, because he hasn't been alive but a couple of days. It's not like, I've been around a long time. No, he's, he's gone through all these creatures, and he's named all of them, and it's so tedious. And at, at last, there is a different sort of creature. He says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then it says right after that, for this reason. Prepositional phrases are so important. For this reason, that is, that story was supposed to tell you something that is a reason. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul tells this whole thing about the complementary nature of men and women in marriage, how it produces godliness in both of them, and how it mirrors the relationship of Christ in the church. And then he says, for 
this reason a man should look. See, that is, he takes that verse, he retells it in a teaching format and puts the same verse on it. Because Paul believes the point of Genesis 2, 1 through 18, and the point of Ephesians 21 through 30 is exactly the same thing. The complementary, necessary nature of both genders in marriage. And neither one references children. Though it assumes them. We have a radically different view of human nature than the culture in which we live. And an irreducible part of that is how we understand our engenderedness. The culture wants to say, believe whatever you want about your engenderedness. The reality of nature is the first thing you know about yourself beyond that you're a human being is your gender. And that's right. That's good. That's part of your embodiedness. You're supposed to embrace it. That's why having difficulty with it is so psychologically problematic and painful for people. And that's why we should be enormously sympathetic to people who have same-sex attractions or experience a transgendered emotional ordering in terms of their gender because it's enormously painful because gender is so fundamentally endemic to human existence. And it's because we absolutely believe in gender that we can turn to people that have a different orientation sexually or a different orientation in terms of gender and be like, man, I get how painful that must be. It is the right fountain of empathy. The people who don't believe gender is endemic, how do you muster up any massive sympathy for people who feel totally confused about it? If a guy breaks up with his girlfriend after two dates, you don't break down weeping for him. But when a guy loses his wife after 60 years, you do. Because she was everything to him, and the girl was nothing to the other guy. Because gender is everything on top of our humanity, our misunderstanding of it, our brokenness in it, our struggle with it is so endemic to us, we should be the most sympathetic place for anybody with same-sex attractions or transgendered feelings. Because we believe in the irreducibility of gender. And because it's absolutely fundamental to how we understand what humans are as created by God. The third thing in relationship to evangelism. That is, we have to remember how we lost our moral authority in this culture, how we continue to lose it, and the only way that we can regain it. This might be a little heady for some of you, but we, listen, I can stand up here from now until the cows come home, which isn't really a good metaphor in Wisconsin, right? Because milking, there's always in the barn, right? Just about. But I grew up on a beef farm, so that was always the end of the day, right? And we can, we can learn how to do evangelism, and I can teach you cultural apologetics, and I can give you snarky things to say, and we can talk philosophically about how to prove this passage of the Bible is reliable and the resurrection of Jesus, all that kind of stuff. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because in their mind, our understanding of the fundamental nature of human society is completely defunct in its moral authority. They're not listening. And I'm not saying don't learn how to do evangelism. Like, I, I spent hours and hours and hours, and I spent years of my life learning how to do it. But they're not listening, and here's why. Because a Christian understanding of human culture is associated with the history of American life, and it is understood by many modern people to be totally morally defunct. Okay? 
At the end of the Revolutionary War, more people went to church because the church was on the side of revolution and people saw them on the, quote, right side of history. They were against the oppression of the British. People went, more people went to church. Not true at the end of the Civil War. Civil War, America looked to the church to solve the problem of slavery, and the church couldn't. Now, the vast majority of the active abolitionists were evangelical Christians. I don't know if you know that. A huge proportion of them were evangelical Christians. But they could not persuade the southern slaveholders who also claimed to be evangelical Christians that they were wrong to hold slaves. And because they couldn't do that, the nation went to war. And people said, I don't know if the church can lead American society. Now, after the Second World War, there was a huge uptick in the amount of Americans who went to church because they had seen hell. And they didn't want culture to so fall apart that we would have another second darkness. And so they went to church in droves and they had babies and they created this whole generation which created the boomers, the ones that destroyed everything. And it's half a joke. And when the boomers came of age in the late 50s and 60s, they did what every young generation does. They went into their rebellious phase. But the thing, the thing that rebellious sort of teenagers always have in the back of their mind is a certain insecurity. He says this about it. Shelby Steele says this in his book, um, White Guilt. He says, the adolescent rebel is always a bit insecure, worrying on some level that his indictment of his parents might be wrong. But this was not so with the baby boomers. You see, the, the way teenage rebellion usually works is the way that Mark Twain talked about it, where he said, when I was 17, I couldn't believe what an idiot my father was. And then when I came back 10 years later, I was surprised at how much he'd learned. Right? That's how rebellion normally goes. Kids reject something of their parents, but they don't even really know it, but it's really just to create psychological differentiation. They have this internal need that's part of adolescence to say, I'm different from you. And oftentimes they attack what's most important to their parents, which is often their spirituality and their moral understandings. And they say, I'm not like you. And they do their little thing. But all the while inside of them, they think, yeah, dad's probably right. (laughs) I'm going to, you know, forget him. But there's this understanding like they, they're, they, re, they realize their parents are good people. They're probably right. There's probably some wisdom in what they say. And as they differentiate themselves, they realize it, but then they, they get in their own lane and it's similar to their parents, but it's theirs, right? That's just part of development. Here's the problem. In the 50s and 60s, as the civil rights movement was moving out of segregation, and attacking it as a great moral evil. And as people were beginning to understand how great a moral evil it was, as the boomer generation moved into this adolescent moment of rebellion, it actually had a absolutely airtight reason to be right about the rejection of their parents. It was one of the first generations in American history in which a airtight reason for rebellion to totally indict a parental generation was absolutely present in an emerging generation. And so they not only rebelled like every generation does, but they had the best reason to never come back. And as the movement got some steam, it moved from Jim Crow and segregation, which was so obviously right, to the less clear, but still they felt pretty certain anti-war movement, that we shouldn't be in Vietnam, we shouldn't be fighting communism halfway around the world and people dying over there. Whether or not that's right, who knows, but it felt super right at the time, right? Which then moved to, wait, wait, if we were oppressing blacks and sending people off to die, what about women? We're, t- we're, we're so mean to women, right? Women are, are subjugated and they don't go to college and we need to, and part of that then 
became the sexual revolution, which Archie McKinney, who used to be an elder of this church, said was the greatest trick men ever played on women. Which is probably right. And so part of feminism was going t- although there were a lot of great things in feminism, right? There's a lot of great stuff in feminism. There was a good portion of it that went terribly wrong. Right? And that, which led to the birth control and abortion revolution, which then led eventually to the divorce revolution. And all of that became cultural disestablishment. And it started with boomers who absolutely felt they had the moral authority to create an entirely new reality because we didn't get segregation right. And the reason why that's important is that if we're going to understand how we get back enough moral authority that anybody would listen to us, the, here's the bottom line. It's that we're not going to lead more people to Jesus through like better sermons and better evangelism. The only thing in the next 50 or 60 years that is really going to lead very large numbers of people to Jesus is that if you and I are virtue giants. If you, I'm dead serious about that. And we aren't. We aren't. The only thing that is going to leave massive numbers of people to Jesus in a situation where biblical Christians are seen as a pariah is when they are—we are slandered in public, and they're taught all kinds of bigotry about us, and then they show up and actually have to deal with us in person, and they're sent into a tailspin of cognitive dissonance because we're nothing like what they were told we would be like. That's it. And here's the thing. I did not come up with that theory on Thursday. Okay? That is what Peter says when he writes from Rome, where Christians are hated terribly, to Christians all over modern-day Turkey, where they were also disliked greatly. He said, this is how you do it. He said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong— that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to the, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For, 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 it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Listen, you think that people believe bigotry about you because you're a biblical Christian. In the first century, the Romans were taught publicly that Christians were cannibals because they ate the flesh of Jesus Christ. They were incestuous because they married their brother and sister because they called everybody brother and sister. And because in Christ we're all brothers and sisters. And that means you marry a sister and people say, well, that's incest. Do you see the ignorance and yet the sort of reasonability of it? To them, because they know nothing, that sounds pretty reasonable. And ultimately, because we couldn't get our hands on an unlimited amount of the flesh of Jesus Christ, they also believed that the way Christians got enough human flesh to eat in their cannibalism was by eating babies. Okay? That's what, that's what the Romans in the first and second century were taught about Christians, pervasively. But Justin Martyr could stand up in the second century and write the first and second apology, that is defense, and say, we're nothing like that, and you know it. Every time you meet one of us, we're nothing like that. In the the Roman Empire, the divorce rate was something like 70%. And yet, I think it was Hillary, one of the church fathers in the second century, said, divorce is unheard of among us, and you know it. Because the divorce rates in Rome, among Christians and Romans, were not 
45, 50%. (laughs) It was 70%, 2%. And the Christians were moral giants when it came to these things. And they were peasant farmers and slaves and women, but it didn't matter. They were morally courageous. They were virtuously enormous. It didn't matter how much slander or bigotry was evoked against them. The minute people met them or were in the Christian community, they knew it was wrong. They knew it was wrong. A few verses later, Peter says this, But in your heart set about Christ as Lord or King. And always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And and normally that's why we do evangelism, right? But look at the continuative participle right there. What are you supposed to be doing while you get ready to give an answer? It says, keeping this whole time, the whole time you prepare to give an answer, keeping a clear conscience, meaning that there's nothing in your conscience that can offend of a lack of virtue in the life that you lived before Christ. Nothing. Keep a clear, totally clean conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of that slander. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died, that is, Christ suffered for the sins of everyone. It's better that you suffer for good rather than evil. And it's only by keeping a clear conscience that you're ever going to have the moral authority to give an answer as to the reason for the hope that's within you. Friends, listen, it's always true that we should be seeking holiness, but I am dead serious. The whole like, oh, let's be this evangelistic, seeker-sensitive church. Let's make it all—let's make sure we have all the best coffee, and then people will come. Nobody's going to accept Jesus that way, okay? It's over. It's over. Nobody's going to do that. They will come to Jesus if you and I are moral, virtuous giants. That's it. It's the only way. And we're not, but we can be. Jesus said, I will be with you in the personal Holy Spirit to the very end of the age. He's taught us enormously helpful things in the scriptures. He's put us around each other to annoy and discipline and push each other and encourage each other. He's given us everything that we need, the Bible says, for life and godliness. The one, it says in Philippians, who started a good work in you, he will carry it to completion. You just have to cooperate and be there and walk with it. And that is how we will be what we're meant to be and how many will come to know Jesus. 47th, if your real desire is that you hunger and thirst for righteousness to be like Jesus, then this coming era, whatever happens, is going to be really good for us. See, if, if what you care about, if you're an idolater, if what you really care about is your own comfort, your own power, your own affirmation, your own approval, your own achievement, and those aren't rooted in Jesus, then my advice to you if you're not going to change your mind about that, is you better just leave Christianity. (laughs) The sooner the better. And erase, like, any online vestiges that you were ever connected with faith in any way. Go through your whole Facebook account, every blog post that's ever quote, everything. Just get, just get all off of there. But if what you really want is what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he said, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but actual Jesus-like righteousness. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for that, for they will be filled. And I don't know what's going to happen. I'm I'm not really—I don't like to be a doom and gloom person. It could be that our culture actually kind of implodes really fast. People kind of see the results of our disestablishment and what that's producing in human life, and there might be an enormous revival very soon. I don't know. Or things might be kind of bad for a long time. I don't really know. I don't know. It doesn't matter. 
What matters is that if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, whatever happens, you're going to be filled. But if, you, if you're clinging to idols, if Jesus is sort of your, like, heaven insurance or fire insurance or whatever, if you, if you like the sort of Jesus thing generally because you like people in your life that you can tr- kind of trust, but, but you have all these idols about what your life is really for, most of those are going to be torn away from you. Or you're constantly going to be sh- pulled apart by trying to get the approval of the culture in which we live while still trying to hold on to something of the Christian faith. And, and that is a terrible place to be full of stress and anxiety and personal brokenness, and Jesus would have you not live in that. But the good news is that in the twilight of our idols is the, is the glow of Christ. And it will, and it will, it may heal you. And if, and if you, your heart is full of those idols, and all of our hearts are from time to time, if things get more difficult for us, then that means that God is being loving and gracious to us. Because if we wouldn't let those idols go when things were good, we needed the pain of things turning. Otherwise, we would have done it when things were good, but we won't. And so it might be an enormous graciousness of God that we would be disapproved of and stigmatized and slandered. And you should thank God and and worship Him and adore Him that He would treat you that way. 67th, we're going to have to, or we're going to get to, learn the truths of our actual faith. I mean, if I sat down with you and I said, okay, um, uh, explain to me the doctrines that you know. Most people are like, well, the Bible is God's word. Jesus is king, savior, something like that. I'm forgiven of my sins. And I say, okay, explain a Christian doctrine of marriage. What does it mean to be a man or a woman and to be bonded in unified life in the covenant of marriage? Most people would kind of be like, um, oh, and you might be like, look, I, like, I don't need to like, know the academic, blah, 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 systematic theology. I mean, like, I love my wife or my husband. No, yes, you do. Because when you don't understand what it is, if you don't understand the teleology of the meaning of what you are, you don't have the clarity of mind, you don't have the passion and motivation of heart, and you don't have the capacity to discipline towards something that's clear. You can't orient your whole humanity towards what you're meant to be. And if you can't say, I know what marriage is. Marriage is the lifelong, complementary, monogamous, cohabiting, procreative, sovereign union in which two people come together to mirror the relationship of Christ and the church in covenantal union before God so that God would have godly offspring and we would be strengthened to fulfill the creation mandate while living out in our home a bastion of the redemption home. And know what all those different parts mean and their fundamental significance to who we are. You can't You can't see marriage in all its glory. And here's the thing. That's one of the reasons why Christians are so deviant in relationship to sex and why we don't have any moral authority when we talk to our gay neighbors. Because we don't understand what marriage is, all of those parts of what marriage is don't drive into our emotional engine and create an enormous output of joy in sex. And so we need other things. And so how many Christian men are just wrapped up in pornography? What's our promiscuity rate among non-married younger Christians? Really high. What's our divorce rate? What's our— The reason we're not the moral giants we're meant to be isn't just because we're just a lot worse than everybody else. You might as well think of yourself that way. It'd be helpful for your humility, but it's probably not true, right? It's, it's, part of it is that we don't know who we are. 
We don't understand what we're doing. We don't see it in its richness. We don't understand how it all works together. We don't see it. And because of that, we're just kind of doing little bits and we're learning a lot more from our culture than from Jesus. And it, it, it doesn't work. And we have, don't have clarity, and we don't have motivation, and we don't have fortitude in the most meddlesome areas of our life that Jesus wants to talk about because they're the most important. And we have to. And the, here's the good news. The good news is this cultural thing is going to make us. <laughs> because if you don't have deeper roots, this wind is going to blow you right up. But you know what? I, here, here's what I think. I'm not sure you want that. Now, you might be like, Nick, we come to 60-minute sermons. Are you sure we don't want that, right? But I, there's part of me that feels like if I spent 15 hours writing a talk on what marriage is for a Sunday night, how many people do you think would come to that? Nine? Right? I don't know. I don't know. Uh-oh. Thanks. And lastly— Lamenting wickedness has to be consistent. Lamenting. Because if we're going to be virtuous giants, if we're really going to become that kind of person, we have to get our emotions online with what's true. And emotions being online with what's true is we will lament when things of wickedness happen. So last week, if you were here at High Point, we came up and we prayed about what ha- the killings in South Carolina. And we prayed for the families involved. We prayed, we lamented the fact that murder had entered into not just an African-American community, but a church in a prayer meeting. The level of sacrilege was so profound. The fallout, terrible. Not only that, but lamenting the inward turn and the fundamental brokenness of the killer himself and the fact that he spouted all kinds of racist crap to people all around him in his life. And they were like, yeah, I guess he's kind of racist. But they weren't like, dude, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And no, nobody did that. Nobody punched him in the face the night before and told him that. A whole web of lamentable wickedness happened, and we tried to lament it. Institutionalizing a rejection of God's plan for humanity by clouding and overturning its fundamental definition based in the inherent distinction of what we are in, as engendered human beings and how that will confuse perhaps generations of people and their understanding of their gender and their calling and their teleology and their motivations and their clarity and the fallout of that and what that will produce is enormously lamentable. When David was writing about God's word in Psalm 119, he said, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He found it lamentable, not just when people killed people, but when people just rejected God. Whether it was that they rejected God and destroyed human beings made in his image, like in murder, or whether it was they rejected our image bearing within gender in procreative families the way God designed us to be and commanded us to live. And so if you lamented this week, but not last week. There's a problem. If the Supreme Court thing came out on gay marriage and you were like, oh God, and last week when people were shot to death in their church, you were like, oh, that's bad. Do you see how the emotional connection to the truth, there's something wrong? But if last week you lamented and this week you didn't, There's also something wrong. 
because the connection to the overflow of emotion and the truth is not connected. And if you lamented neither week, there's something wrong. And we have to get the fire of our emotional life connected to the truth in relationship to our rationality and the discipline into our practices. Otherwise, we will fall into being emotive and therefore grasping at power and fighting back and creating all kinds of damage instead of being a faithful witness in any kind of slander and suffering. For the truth of Jesus lived out in beautiful virtue with a clear understanding of what human beings are, un broken by us telling, by people telling us we're going to be relics and on the wrong side of history because we know we're going to be on the wrong side of public opinion. We know we're going to be on the wrong side of their opinion, but we're going to be on the right side of history. Not because we're good, but because Jesus is going to pull us into the right side of the future, no matter how many bad sides of history we're going to be on. We've been on a bunch of them, and we're going to be on a bunch more. Our grandchildren are going to look at us, and they're going to be like, what a bunch of idiots. But let's get a few things right. And be as great as we can be and trust Jesus to forgive our blindnesses wherever they remain. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are giants of godliness and virtue. Without a shred of self-righteousness, full of humility, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, desiring to be on Jesus' side of the future and therefore the proper side of the present, to move towards our neighbors rather than against them, to seek to persuade rather than to pressure, to be keeping a clear conscience in all things and to live such a good life among the pagans that they would be ashamed of what they say about us, that we would undo bigotry by beauty of life, and that those who speak for your name and our culture would do so in a way that is right, in a way that is truthful, in a way that is tactful, even if we fight the long defeat in it. We pray that there would be a twilight of our idols in the stigmatization we receive and that it would lead us more deeply to a beautiful relationship and life in you. And we pray that through that would come a moral authority by which people would listen to the message of Jesus and that millions would be saved. Pray in Jesus' name.